Hi everyone and welcome back to Final Film and today I'm bringing you my review of Oppenheimer, the new Christopher Nolan film. I went to go and see it last night as I recorded this, so I'm recording this on Saturday. I went last night, Friday night, on the opening night to the IMAX in Manchester, the View Printworks, um, and it's one of the only screens in the world that are showing it as the sort of traditional 15 by uh, 70 millimeter print and what an experience, what an experience the film was in general, but then just the experience of seeing it in the IMAX, because obviously we know now with no one's work going all the way back to um, the stuff that he did with the dark Knight, and then going into the dark Knight rises inception into Stella, and then moving into things like Dunkirk and Tenet that he's, he's making films on this epic scale and he's doing it all through the large format filmmaking of IMAX and what the sort of IMAX cameras allow him to do. And, I'm pretty sure I'm certain in saying that all of this was filmed with IMAX cameras. There are still the shifts in aspect ratio. Um, I usually associate the fact that you can tell when they've gone all out and they've shot a scene with the sort of the big IMAX cameras when the aspect ratio fills the screen. And then sometimes it comes down to sort of letterbox style. You get that more in the more conversational scenes in this, but I think I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit there. Um so if you're if you're unaware, if to be honest, at this point you've been living under a rock with all the Barbie and Oppenheimer stuff, Oppenheimer is a it's a sort of war biopic film about J. Robin Oppenheimer, who essentially came up with the idea or the sort of managed to build an atomic bomb. And what we see in the film is very much a film of three parts. We get a very so generic, but generic feels like a bit of a, a downplay, a bit of a disservice to use. But to go down that route then, a bit of a generic biopic style opening in that it's very, very fast paced. It's very sort of breakneck speed of this is Oppenheimer. This is who he is. This is him as an academic. This is him, um, his rise to prominence, his philandering, because that is apparently a big part of him and his person and who he was. Then we go into... I suppose it is the second act of them building the bomb and the build, the build of the bomb and the build up to the bomb and the, the testing, and the explosion and all that kind of stuff. And um, we get the sort of the building of the town of Los Alamos, which for me is where the film sort of settled. It began to sort of settle down at that point. I feel like everything that came before that of Oppenheimer sort of going seeing Niels Bohr and, you know, the, all the stuff with him in Cambridge and the Apple and, all that kind of stuff was going so quickly and I, it was a bit like, let's just get this exposition out of the way. Let's just get it done and get it done and get it quick and out of the way. And then as soon as Matt Damon's character um, appears on the screen, everything sort of comes down a little bit and we're almost at a sort of steady pace from there on in. So the building of Los Alamos, the idea being that they want to recruit all these scientists to go and help them build the bomb. And in order for them to feel the most comfortable, they're going to get their families and they're going to reroute all of their families to this town as well. And during that, it's the relationships between Oppenheimer, the relationships between the government, him and his wife, um, and as well as all these other things that are going on around it. And then in the third act, and I'm going to I'm going to do my best to not spoil anything here, because obviously I want everyone who's listening to this to go and um, watch it themselves you get a lot of harrowing images in the third act. And this is, it's almost going down to, and I text Sam this morning um, about it. It's very witch hunty, the third act, in that 
the the putting Oppenheimer on trial, the feeling like you know he was a communist, he led certain things to the Soviets, um, he was not loyal to his country. So there's a lot of interspersed talking scenes of him on trial with the sort of emotional resonance that you're getting through Killian Murphy's performance and his character just through his facial expressions, which I'm going to come back to in just a little bit. So uh, around this film, especially in the third act, you have things like World War II early on. You then go into the Cold War with the Soviets. You're then getting things like McCarthyism in Senator McCarthy's mentioned a little bit. The Red Scare all taking place in the background. So I find that quite interesting being as the context around Rebel Without a Cause and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I've just spent a couple of years teaching, is coming up in this film. And, you know, I'd sort of done my reading around that anyway. So th- that's sort of the the basic in terms of the plot and what it is and how things are moving. In terms of how it's told, you're looking at a non-linear narrative, which is something that we get all the time with Nolan films, or the majority of the time with Nolan films anyway, utilising this colour and black and white sequences, perhaps more akin to Memento, but Memento being a film that was black and white in colour in relation to time with the idea that the black and white was moving forwards, the colour was going backwards and at the end, the interspersed at sort of the middle of that timeline. Instead here, the the mixed palettes are more of an indication of perspective with black and white being the literal black and white of it being objective, being as what you are seeing, you know is true um, probably through the historical records and mainly through the character of Strauss, through Robert Downey Jr.'s character, character of Strauss, in that a lot of what he says is no nonsense. And I began to wonder as I was watching the film, does this boil down to more of Strauss's words and accounts of things being more accessible and written down rather than Oppenheimer's own maybe thoughts, words, views of the things that happened being written down? Because I know that Oppenheimer... Um, the the sort of the main biography for him is American Prometheus, but that wasn't written by him. That was written by somebody else. So I'm wondering how much of Oppenheimer's life he actually managed to get down, um, in his own words. Hence, this being a bit more subjective. But I mean, I, I enjoyed the subjective stuff more than the objective stuff, mainly because it allowed, it gave me that autonomy to think for myself, and it gave me that autonomy to sort of go. How is he feeling at this point? How is he feeling? At, how would I feel at that, that point? How are certain characters feeling in relation to decisions that Oppenheimer's then going to made? How is he feeling about his own decisions that he's been made? Um, and really, and again, going back to this idea of Killian Murphy's central performance, the camera being so close to his face and the emotion and everything else that you're seeing in his face it's this idea that you can, you can, it's something you can read him, you can read his face. And I say that in a way where people say, you know, I can read you and all that kind of stuff. I think this is the most I've ever been able to read a character on a film just through the facial expressions. Um, and it's him contemplating morality, him contemplating the ethics of what it is that he's done. Um, there's a lot towards the end of the film, and again, I'm going to try not to go too heavy into spoiler territory here, of him, of the the sort of the the sort of um, the effect of his work hitting him, and it only it only really hitting you. Like I've always said, I'm someone who believes it when I see it, and I think there's a little bit of that in here in that what. Oppenheimer's having to deal with is the after effects of what it is that he's just done. 
in that, yes, he's built a bomb, but then it's been taken off him and how it then proceeds to be used. And again, I'm trying to skirt around certain things here. Um, as a film, as a piece of cinema, technically, the score, the cinematography, sound mixing, sound editing, the fact that I'm even okay to say sound editing and sound mixing, right? Which for years and years have been categories in the Oscars that I've looked at and I've just thought, I don't really know if I'm certain on the difference between those two. This film is surely going to pick it up, pick the pick awards up for sound mixing and sound editing because there are certain points where, like, the it's so well engineered how they managed to get the sound so loud in certain points and then lower in other points. But then at the same time in one sequence again towards the end, which I'm not going to say too much about where they get a, a happy balance between the two of things going on in diegetic sound, but then non-diegetic completely going away. But then also certain diegetic sounds completely going away. It's, 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 it's probably a rambling sentence that I've just said, but yeah, it's, so as a as a piece of cinema and how it's been crafted, everything is working at the top of its game. Everything fits. All the pieces fit. The performances are, I would say, and this might be a knee-jerk response, but thinking about it, I don't know if it is. I think this is the best ensemble cast that no one has ever had. Now, I love the Inception cast. Love DiCaprio. Um, Paige, Gordon Levitt, everyone who's in that film is hitting. Here, you've got the fantastic central performance by Killian Murphy, who at this point needs to at least be nominated when it comes to award season. He should win it, but obviously I'm not certain on what's going to go up against him at that point, at this, at this moment in time. Fantastic central performance, all the emotions on his face, you're reading everything, you're, it's down to your interpretation as well. Robert Downey Jr. This is Robert Downey Jr.'s best work. And I say that, obviously, he's a huge fan of the Marvel franchise, but I feel like with Tony Stark, that was like one of those roles that he was born to play. And towards the end, he was really kind of doing it with his eyes closed. This is nuance. This is, in, in, in parts, levity, in parts, sort of dour, bleakness, reactionary thing. It's just, it's, it's his best work. But then on top of those two really, really solid performances, the, the rest of the ensemble cast, Emily Blunt, who, for me, when I was watching her play Kitty Oppenheimer, I, th I thought, there are parts of her that I'm understanding, there are parts of her that I'm thinking, this feels like a little bit of a weaker character in the, in the screenplay, so maybe that's a sort of a disconnect from the screenplay. But ultimately, towards the end of the film, there's a scene, and you will know it if you see it, where... She takes a character up to 11, and again, it's fantastic. Florence Pugh as Oppenheimer's sort of estranged lover, um, absolutely fantastic. And again, probably the most mature performance of Florence Pugh that I've, that I've seen up to this point. Um, yet to watch things like Don't Worry Darling. I, you know, I know Florence Pugh from um, sort of Black Widow and fighting with my family and stuff like that. So this is the probably the most mature I've seen her. Um, Matt Damon, very solid performance. 
But the the ones that sort of are going under the radar as as not many people saying, but ones that I wanted to pick up. Like everyone's sort of mentioning Benny Safdie again. He was great. Ones that I think are, again are going under the radar. Josh Hartnett's character, great his performance. Um, David Crumholtz. I want to say it's David. Apologies if it's not. Great. Um, Jason Clark really sort of villainous antagonist towards the end of the film or in certain sequences towards the end of the film. But then even um, make on blurs and lawyer character, like the, there's just everyone is working at an upper level. And this is why this film works. Everybody is working on a level unlike anything I've ever seen before. There's nobody in this film that makes me go, yeah, you shouldn't have been in this. You're bringing this down a little bit. You're not quite on the same par as everybody else. This is just everyone working top of their game, including no one. I will. Im- I would imagine that no one is going to get some noms along the way in terms of awards. I think you're probably looking more screenplay-wise rather than direction, even though there's nothing wrong with his direction. I think if it came down to it, and I know it doesn't necessarily work like this, of, between the two, I think the screenplay just irks it for me. But Generally, like if you were stopping the year now, this would be sweeping the boards. This would be sweeping the boards of everything: director, picture, actor, di- you know, screenplay, supporting actor. I'd go supporting actress for Florence Pugh. Um, I, I I wouldn't know if you would then want to stick Blunt in for actress at that point, but I think between the two, Pugh has the edge. Um, Ultimately, you know, it's it's a long film. It's three hours long, and I, I saw that people were sort of saying, "Oh, it doesn't feel like three hours." And there's there's part of that that I agree with, and part of that that I disagree with. There was there was a point where towards the end of the second act where I thought, "Okay, we're, we're sort of we're wrapping up here now. We're finishing up here now," and we weren't. There was still an extra little bit to do. But I have definitely sat through stuff that felt longer, like Wolf of Wall Street. Felt like I'd done an entire box set whereas this was sort of quite speedy in its pace and stuff like that. Um, it's it's up there with Mission Impossible as my favourite film of the year so far. I think it pips Mission Impossible, mainly because I've not stopped thinking about it. And in the, in the sort of thing that's happening right now, the zeitgeist of Barbie and Oppenheimer, and people sort of saying, oh, we're going to do both on the same day. I have seen it said online, and I have to agree, even though I've not yet seen Barbie. Do Barbie first, because there is some stuff that you are going to see in Oppenheimer. There are some sort of... Just just like sitting there and just my brain going 10 to the dozen of like, oh my God, he's actually done this thing, and he now can't deal with the fact that he's done this thing. I just I didn't stop thinking about it. I I got on the track usually on the way home, um, from from the cinema. I'll I'll put my earphones in and I'll get on the tram and I'll listen to some stuff. Usually a podcast of Ellis and John or or something like that. I listened to nothing. I sort of just sat typing into my phone, typing notes into my phone of things that I wanted to say, things that I wanted to get across. But the fact that it stayed with me for as long as it did. Like I, 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 yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna have affected me and other people more than any film that you're gonna see this year, and in that sense, 
of course it's a success. It's success. It can't not be a success at that point. So that's Oppenheimer. I'd I'd go the full five stars for it. It's up there with Mission Impossible, beats Mission Impossible, favorite film of the year so far. In terms of no one, no one's work, for me, better than Dunkirk, better than Tenet, better than Interstellar. The, the Dark Knight trilogy holds such a sort of place in my heart that I find it difficult, but I would say better than Rises and Begins. Um, it, It's up there, top three. You know, it's up there with Inception, it's up there with The Dark Knight, for no one's stuff. Better than Prestige, Memento, Following. Yeah. Yeah, it's up there, Insomnia, yeah. It's up there, top three. Yeah. Okay, so, um, there are going to be a few more reviews coming your way uh, on the channel and on the podcast feed. Um, I've been sent a copy of the 4K release of Scream 6, so I'm going to get around to that. Um, we've been sent a copy of Dungeons & Dragons, so getting around to that. Um, are You the God, It's Me, Margaret, getting around to that. I'm hoping at some point this week to get out and see Barbie. Ruby's going with my wife, so I might have to sort of either track it out on my own, or if Ruby really enjoys it, I'll go out and see it anyway, and then we'll probably come on and do one. I'm going to the audience screen on scene on Monday, I think that's going to end up being talked to me. So that's probably going to be one of the ones that I do there as well. Um, and then we're getting back with some sort of content in terms of um, top tens and tier lists and things like that. So Ollie and Holly are coming on this week and we're going to get some stuff done. So in the midst of all these reviews coming out, there'll also be content with things like that as well. Um, so in the meantime, you can help support the podcast. Go over to our sponsor, FLTs. Use the code FARIN. That's F-A-R-R-A-N-D, 15% off your order. Go over to our Redbubble page. That's got a couple of different director filmography t-shirts on. It's got the Barbie and the Oppenheimer t-shirts on as well that I did. Um, And yeah, stay safe. Look after each other. I'll see you next time. Go and watch Oppenheimer.